What kind of car do you drive and what does it say about you? Whenever I drive our Audi Q3, people actually ask me if it's my wife's car. Well, guess what? It is. I drive a Land Rover. What does your car say about you? Forget about what you eat. You are what you drive. After years of epic dinner parties, long lunches and boozy brunches, we bring you Shaken and Stirred. Or rather, we are Shaken and Stirred. Well, welcome to Shaken and Stirred. I'm Nigel Barker. I'm here with my co-host, Tom Astor. And this is the show where we can talk about anything. Nothing is off the table. The show was designed about around these long dinners, crazy lunches, boozy breakfasts that Tom and I had. And when I was thinking about my top 10 people I could have at a table for a great conversation, there was one person who came to mind, and it's partly because of the crazy boozy dinners I've actually had with you in the past. I resemble that comment. Uh, <laughs> it is, of course, the fabulous and the most amazing bespoke suit designer that I know. And actually, I've got to say, I don't know how many suits of yours I own now. I think five or six, including a rather dashing white tuxedo that I just picked up. It is Duncan Quinn. Thank you very much, Mr. Nigel Barker. Savile Row meets rock and roll designer, by all accounts. That's what GQ said. I, I, I take no uh, actual accolades for having written that. I love the fact that dressing um, both gentlemen and rogues, where does that come from? Well, I think that just comes from historically, if you look at uh, most of the business of the guys on Savile Row over the years, it tended to be aristocratic types and gangsters. I'm not sure which were the gentlemen and which were the rogues. It was possibly interchangeable, but you definitely had characters who were uh, who dipped into the darker side of life, and some who were very kind and uh, benevolent. I think it's one and the same, and I love this because you're already dipping into your, your cocktail. And before we get going, I want to talk about this. We have our cocktail of the week. Tom, tell us what we're drinking. Uh, a sidecar. Okay, a sidecar. And how do we make a sidecar, Tom? <laughs> Sorry, I've already had a couple. I was just testing them, making sure they're all right. Um, cognac, triple sec lemon juice. Very simple, easy to make. And very you good. Get, you can get your children to make them for you with uh, extreme ease. That's how you learnt, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's what I learnt making cocktails for my parents. And actually, I've been on vacation with you, and, and I've, I've seen you teach your son how to make a cocktail. Yes, we, we did one, if there's one thing I have to do every summer is teach one of my children a new cocktail. The lessons of life. Preferably the one that you'll be drinking all day so that by the time you're so incapacitated you can't make it yourself, they can make it for you. There we go. This is definitely not a PC show. That's what children Clearly. are for. Come on. I love it. Fantastic. And where does this drink come from, by the way? Where it was Sidecar? This drink, it alleged, supposedly the Ritz in Paris uh, want to claim ownership for it, but apparently it was invented or created by an American captain, army captain, uh, stationed in Paris after World War One, and he named it after his method of transport was a sidecar. And the reason uh, we, I thought it was appropriate today was... Um, Duncan's uh, interest Duncan's in cars. Duncan's interest in cars. Uh-huh. And here it, I mean, we come all a, the way a, around. Segway. <laughs> I know Tom, Tom is particularly good at doing segues. I, sort of, you know, I try to control him. There's sort of like, Tom, don't give it away. Oh, no, no. Oh, boom. Here we go. Cat's out the bag. Was I not supposed to say anything? Sorry. No, well, of course you are. The, 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 listen, when it comes to clothes, I literally wear your suits all the time. But one of the interesting things about you, Duncan, and your, the way you've advertised and created this sort of I want to say 
campaign, but the legend around Duncan Quinn. It's very James Bond. The cars play a big part. I know you're into classic cars. We love cars. Tom, you're a car person. I mean, why? Why was the car so important to you when it comes to the whole image of Duncan Quinn? Um, look, I think I should preface all of this uh, with the fact that I think, as you know, I'm a, actually a lawyer in recovery. And and so when you've been burdened with having yourself shackled to a desk for 20 hours a day, every day for many, many years, you dream about escape and you dream about doing wonderful things and having incredible experiences with people and sharing fantastic things. So you went from being a lawyer to being a designer who now basically travels the world getting spray tans. This is a real tan, I have to say. I have to emphasize. <laughs> Sorry, it just is so no, perfect. No spraying involved. I have just come back from the dark heart of Africa and a brief interlude in Miami. So it's all real. Can I also just say that we're on radio so no one can actually see this? <laughs> That's why I'm describing no, no, it very can, clearly. They can, they can see it, don't worry. Um, but I think just, you know, the car stuff, you know, long before I, I ever got into the clothes, I was I was very much into cars and motorcycles and going fast. And I ran nightclub parties for years, so I was into kind of booze and fun. And um, and, and I, I guess I grew up sort of somehow absorbing the idea of gentlemen and rogues because my dad was in the Sweeney and so when he was chasing around after gangsters you kind of had the cops and robbers thing and then you had kind of the aristocrats wandering up and down Savile Row getting their suits and all of this stuff sort of folded into Michael Caine movies like Get Carter and The Ipcrest File and The Italian Job and that whole era even Alfie, you know, when he, he's wearing a suit it's and a he's, he's, yeah, and he sort of says he doesn't want, he doesn't care what um, makeup the girls wear, whether it's Max Factor or something or L'Oreal, as long as they keep their hands off his tonic. And tonic <laughs> is, a, is a very, very particular type of suit fabric that's only made by the Dorme family who are based in Paris and have been making fabric since 1842 in Huddersfield. Um, so when I started doing the clothing thing really more full-time uh, to make a living than just having a lark while I was a, an attorney because I did it for a long time before I kind of decided that I should really be doing one not the other it just really seemed to me to make sense that the guys who loved really beautiful suits also tended to love old and rare wine and wonderful cars and trips and sailboats and you know cocktails and it all ties back to that sort of James Bond fierce cocktails fast cars you know fancy women but it's not just a, a, a lifestyle. I mean, it's, it, for me, rather, it's not just an advertising campaign. For you, it is a lifestyle. <laughs> I'm glad you corrected yourself. Sorry. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, look. I, started, I was thinking, I was thinking <laughs> I'm like, actually, it is a lifestyle. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you know, I, I sort of do everything I do to have fun and then to enjoy it with other people. Um, can you we know, just, sorry, can we quickly drink to that? Cheers. Cheers okay. to that. I drank moment. to that kind of comment. Yeah. <laughs> right, sorry. Interrupt. Uh, very much allowed. Um, and uh, now I can't remember where I was going. Uh, the legend. Oh, sure. Yeah, no. And so all of these things, none of it's really concocted. It's funny that today everybody's pushing experiential marketing and blah, blah, blah. I mean, all I did was when I started doing this, I basically tried to get a club of guys together who were really fun and liked doing crazy things and just keep bombarding them with fun stuff to do. And over the years, it evolved into, you know, it's almost like a private club where the entree is you come and get a bespoke suit from me or somehow wheedle your way into the circle, and then you get invited to 
come and hang out on a 200-foot boat in Monaco for the Grand Prix or come to Africa and charge around in Land Rovers through the bush. Um, Which or, I want to talk about too, because that's sure. something you've just got back from now. Yeah, I just got back. Um, I've been going to Zambia since 1994, um, so I have sort of fairly interesting connections there. But about six years ago, I somehow started doing a car rally uh, they do every year. Um, and it's a little bit of a wacky story because the first time I started doing it, I somehow got in touch with these guys and I was going back and forth by email and, you know, I wasn't really sure if I was going to go. And in true DQ style, it got to about Thursday afternoon and I was like, okay, shit, I need to leave or not go because the rally's on Saturday. So I left New York on Thursday, got to got to Zambia, I don't know, super late Friday, said to them, can you have someone pick me up at the airport? Nobody turned up, got up at 3 a.m., found out how to get out there. Had a couple of gin and tonics, you know, just to keep the malaria As one away. Does. Well, you know, the anti-malarial, anti-malarial. Yeah. Exactly. There is a reason for every drink. And and uh, and you know, I found the lady I'd been emailing with, and she she just looked at me agog as if I was like an alien who'd landed from outer space because she told me that her husband had assured her that there was no way on earth anyone was stupid enough to come from New York for the weekend to do a car rally in Zambia. Therefore, it must have been someone who was just spamming her the whole time to wind her up to get somebody to come to the airport. I left on Sunday night. I was on planes, I think, for – it took 32 hours to get there and 32 hours to get back, and I was actually in Zambia for 24 hours. Um, but I just kept doing it every year, and slowly but surely we put a team together. Like, cause it, because it sounds like something you're passionate about. I mean, this isn't – Yeah, yeah. I mean, look – You're not going to spend 32 hours on a – 64 hours on a plane. And I think it's that passion that I'm fascinated with. There is a sort of an interesting thing where people who get into cars, and I think they're almost – I don't really know anyone who's really not into cars. Certainly amongst my friends, we're all – very passionate about but the cars. backstory, though, is that is, the, is w w why you're have you been going there since now? You have you, there's a backstory, yeah. No, I mean, there's a back, there's a couple of reasons I do it. So, um, when I was studying law the first time around in England, uh, where I went to university, there weren't really fun parties for people to go to. So, my younger brother had started DJing on pirate radio when he was about 12. So, by the time he was 15, he was playing in big warehouses in Hackney for 5,000 mm -hmm. people at illegal raves. So, I figured let's get him to come play in, in Bristol where I was. So I needed a sound system, and the guy that I found turned out to be a Zambian guy. And we kind of became friends, and I guess after I graduated, I went to Africa for like three months and hung out there. And I ended up being his best man, two of his sons are my godsons. And so over the years, I've been every single year. But So that's one connection. I mean, and what is I, the I race the benefit? I mean, yeah. I mean, that's where I was going. I mean, the, the thing that's, that, that really is important about this... Other than getting you excited by the sound of the engines and the romance of it, because let's be honest, yes, absolutely, there might be a benefit. But I do see that this is what I'm getting at, though. That there is, you live this lifestyle. Sure. you traveling to Africa at a whim. So one moment you're in New York City at some incredible restaurant having dinner, and I've done these dinners with you, and they are second to none, with, with amazing people. You have an incredible way of bringing people together. Thank you. But I do think that you, know, you live the life. It's not just an image or a campaign. I think that's what's so fascinating is that when you, you decide to actually fully commit to a, a lifestyle and you, you travel all over the world for these moments and that's, it's, that's no small commitment. Well, I mean, and like anything, it has to be authentic, right? If it's not authentic, it's bullshit and then it's valueless. But um, I mean, the reason that I go, go to this thing is because it raises money for conservation. Um, and over the years that I've been going there... So, so you drive through Africa... Yes. <laughs> ripping, up, ripping up the jungle, ripping up well, the desert look, in order for, for conservation. Everything has... Am I missing something Everything here? has complicated nuances, Carbon right? footprint. You know, you're missing so the question of what you're... Flying what, what, to Africa what, what, what for the weekend what he's, for conservation. Sorry, what, I'm sorry. Yes, go ahead. So, so the, my, my, my answer to that is, you know, and needless to say, everybody who's listening to this, next year you can give freely 
so that we raise more money to offset the fact that I have to get on a plane Quite. and go charge around bashing trees down in, in the bush. Um, but it, it goes to a bunch of causes. I mean, the money that's raised, all of it goes basically to um, anti-poaching, uh, to other conservation causes in Zambia. It goes to schools to teach the kids all about tourism and conservation and also to the tribes because 80% of the land in Zambia is actually, was actually given back to the tribes. Unlike many, many countries in Africa, when it became independent from the Brits, it used to be northern, Zam uh, northern uh, um, Rhodesia, for those guys who don't know. Um, and so when it was given back in 1961 and it became independent, most of the land went back to tribal lands. And unfortunately, because the tribes don't have very much money, many of them actually burned the trees down to make charcoal to sell to make money. So one of the things that the charge that I do does is gives money to the tribes, essentially to have them not burn the trees down. So you've got anti-poaching, conservation, education, and just sounds, maintaining the environment. No, it sounds fantastic. I think we all just need to f figure out a reason why we can get in our cars and sort of drive recklessly through the bush well, and put a cause to it. I'm, it's a fabulous thing. Yeah. There is actually a reason for that also, which is there's a very, very famous far, far bigger rally that started in uh, Kenya about 25 years ago. It's called the Rhino Charge. They have about 400 cars that do it every year now. It's very heavily corporate-sponsored. Um, it's kind of almost like the Paris Dakar at this point. Um, and, you know, this was really an offshoot. One of the guys in Zambia did that a lot. He asked them if he could do one in Zambia. They told him to sod off. So he just started his own thing. So what makes guys, I mean, you know, obviously, like, it's, it's obvious that there's a romance behind these races. Paris Dakar, for example. <clears throat> the Paris Dakar, for example, is a great race that is mythical almost. I mean, you know, you, you, there have been movies about it. There are, you know, there are incredible documentaries about it. You know, people have lost their lives during it. I mean, it's, it's really quite a, a, a dangerous race, an incredible race. What is it, do you think, that, that makes people want to do something like that that is so sort of out there? Look, uh, you know, I mean, on some level, it's the same reason that we're sitting having sidecars at the table. Alcohol is, is an escape. Most people are trying to escape from their own life and to do things that kind of jolt their bodies into feeling something. Medicating. Correct. Some people medicate with alcohol. Some people medicate with drugs, prescription or otherwise. Some people medicate by going extremely fast or getting into dangerous situations or jumping out of planes. And the Paris-Dakar, this particular rally that I do, the Rhino Charge, they're all examples of extreme things. I mean, the rally that I do, 30 cars are allowed to enter every year. Last year, six finished. This year, 13 finished. What, one, one what, of the, sorry, what cars? Can I just, what sort of cars are you? Are you? So, um, I mean, it's a broad range of things. Six finished and 30 entered. You're not, you're not, you, do you have to buy them locally and spend 100 quid or are you actually no, bringing your no, own? No, no, no. There are guys who custom build them, bring them in. I mean, there are guys who spent years building these things that started out as one thing and they're highly, highly modified. I mean, you need a very particular vehicle to kind of take the bashing that these get. I mean, for instance, one, one of the guys who does this every year and normally comes in the top two or three. They were winching down uh, a gully, and they were, so they were had a basically had a, a steel cable attached to the back of their car, attached to a very big tree, slowly letting their car down into a gully that was almost a vertical face, and the winch snapped, and they the car dropped a hundred feet to the bottom. Wow! So Terrifying. everybody was fine because they were all locked in in six point harnesses right, and a complete and roll cage. Down. The car just kind of exploded and bits went everywhere. But the cage, but the cage was fine, and they were all just kind of shaken. And, and a little stirred. And, a little stirred. Um, and how much are these cars? <laughs> how much do these cars cost? 
I mean, it's sort of like how much do you want to spend? They don't look fancy, but you know, once you start putting the bits on them and building them, it starts to get more and more expensive. It's it's like building a race car on some level. And is there a um? So you're raising awareness for the conservation. That's that's why you're doing it. So there's an entry fee to do the, sure yeah do the rally. How 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 are you raise? I mean, how is it? Are you raising awareness or are you actually raising money by doing both? It? Um, all the money that's actually contribute. Everybody who's involved in it basically volunteers, and all the money goes to the causes. Um, historically, up to this point, it's been a fairly minimal entry fee because they've been building it for the last 10 years. And then you have a minimum amount you have to raise in sponsorship in order to be able to do it. And there are prizes for like the guys. I mean, the best prize to win is the one that's the, the shortest net distance because this isn't a race that's about going fast. It's a race that's about going in a straight line between 10 checkpoints on very, very rough terrain. So... If you want to go the easy way, you go around the kind of goat tracks and you're fine. If you want to go the difficult way, you winch down from trees and snap your winch and end up 100 feet down a gully with your car exploded. Um, Sounds like the kind of stuff I used to do when I was a kid, by the way. (laughs) Exactly. That's kind of what it feels like. You know, it's like when you jumped off that garage roof that seemed really high because you were eight years old and it was 16 feet off the the ground. What's the fastest way to get from A to B? Correct. Through that window, over that fire pit, I'm there. That's exactly it. Um, Steeplechase. Yeah, well, it's a steep. I mean, it's, it's, it's a- definitely, uh, yeah. I mean, you definitely need to be able to, you know, go into situations that you wouldn't take most cars into. So you also like again. I'm thinking fastest. It's like your good old fashioned steeplechase when you used to go from steeple to steeple yep. in the villages. You know, on, yep. on horses, you take them the most direct route. It's very difficult now because obviously barbed wire. But horse wise, you had to be completely insane to do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly and the same idea. Nuts. And you know, many of these guys are. Unhinged. Kind of several sandwiches short of a picnic, right. yeah. What part of the building aspect of the car? I mean, it, does it, I mean, how much is is that a part of it? People just buy these cars, or can you do? You, is it is everyone really building their car and customizing no. their car? No, I mean there are, there are different levels of of the of the madness. I mean, some people um, you know show up in things that almost look like a road four by four, but they just have fancy tires and a couple of winches on them. Other things are kind of hybrids of all kinds of cars that they've welded together. Mad and, Max. Yeah, Mad Max, completely. There's a car called Animal that started out as a Nissan Patrol, and it literally looks like it should have been on the set of Mad Max. I'm curious to know, you know, what I my first car was a Land Rover, mm-hmm. which is, sounds like quite a glamorous car to have as your first car. <laughs> my wife's first car was actually a, a Jaguar, um, which is even more glamorous. What was your first car? <laughs> Maybe this is why I like the fancy ones so much. Uh, I think I had a Vauxhall Viva. Ah, oh, it's my brother's first car. Mm. I had an Austin Maestro. It was great. It was Vauxhall great in the snow and getting, the, getting the back end out. But the know? closest you'll come to one of those, one of those <laughs> old, old uh, you know, those fifties, what they called, you know. Them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you think your car says about you? Did you like that first car? Did you pick it? No, I didn't pick it. I guess it was just utilitarian, and I went as to it a, probably should be when it's your first. Yeah, car. I mean, it, you know, it was also I, you know, I didn't grow up surrounded by money. I mean, my family wasn't wealthy, and I went, but I luck. I went to a fancy school, so you know, I was with kids who had like nine, Porsche nine elevens for their seventeenth birthday, or Caterham Super Sevens, and all kinds of crazy stuff. So I actually used to park my car outside the school so people didn't see it. But it was it was kind of good for me because I learned how to drive, and then I went on from there to other things and. You know, I mean, now I, I've been lucky enough that over the years I've been able to drive all kinds of crazy machinery. I mean, at the moment, I'm actually working on a project with Aston Martin to um, to do a bunch of DQ cars with them. 
Oh, really? That's yeah. very cool. And, and would your fabric and the suits sort yeah. of be a part of the interior? Yeah, I mean, but essentially, um, I'm going to be doing like an aesthetic pack for the Vantage, the DB11, and the uh, DBS, so that you'll be able to go in and buy one, and I'll basically have spec'd all of the stuff that's on the car, and you won't be able to get that unless you buy the DQ spec, because we're doing a lot of stuff that even if you went through the Q branch to get like a VIP car, they won't do it for you. Coach building. Pretty much. But I mean, coach building. Essentially, in, but I mean, it's more it like of the aesthetic. Yeah, but it's, it's yeah, better. it's it's not like the old school, like Rolls Royce and Bentley, where you get the chassis and we get to build the, build the bodywork because the cars are monocoques these days. Sure. So I can't change but the. But it's the interior. Shape. It's like coach. But it's yeah. the equivalent, interior equivalent to coach yeah. building. Yeah, and so, the yeah. outside detailing right. and you know stuff that you, it's kind of integral to the car, but you can't normally change. I always found it fascinating that the, the sort of what what a car says about a person. You know, when you see someone drive up in a Rolls Royce, for example, or you see someone drive up in a Lamborghini, or they're in a Mini, or you know, they're in a Subaru. Sure. You know, what does it mean? I mean, I remember the story of my father. It's just actually, I was a part of this story. My father hired a Rolls Royce to go and see a client, um, specifically to try and close a deal. Because uh, he was convinced that whoever, this client would be very impressed by the fact that he was driving a Rolls Royce, and that and, I, and he was talking to me and telling me, my dad was sort of teaching me, like, watch what happens. I'm going to drive up in this Rolls Royce. We're going to, and I'm going to walk away with the deal signed. And lo and behold, he hired the Rolls Royce. We drove up there. I, we, when he came in, they were very impressed. They immediately commented on how beautiful his car was, and he did his business talking to the people. And then he left with a signed contract. And 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 it was. I truly believe that they were. So they felt that obviously he was someone with money, someone who was you know wealthy enough to have this car. Therefore, was of a certain ilk, yep. and it created this image, this sort of. It's, it's very. It's a very. It's a very funny story. My my daughter, who is who's at school, I've got a. I've, I have a wedding business and I have an S two old nineteen sixty two S two Bentley. Bentley, beautiful, one of my favorite cars. And incredible. And car. I said, so I told her I was coming down to pick. She was like, "Can you come down and take me out for the night?" And you know, go to some nice hotel on a beach down in Dorset, and you know, we can have a you know nice dinner and all the rest of it. I said, "Great, yeah, absolutely. I'll come down. I said, I'll bring the Bentley down because it needs a good run." And she said, "If you come, and this, by the way, is Nigel. My daughter is Nigel's god." Um, Goddaughter, she said, "If you come down there, I'll kill you, and I'll never speak to you ever again." <laughs> so what did I do? So, so, so I said, "Okay, fine, no problem at all." It's like inverse snobbery. Yeah. So I went down in my pickup truck. I borrowed my general manager's um, caravan. Went down in my pickup truck. Went down to her school and took her out for the weekend. And we went camping in um, Bridport. I took her to a campsite in Bridport. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I think look that. You know the inverse. There's, there, there's two versions. There's, I mean, we're hearing ba- two ends. No, but I was of thinking of your school. I was thinking of yeah. what you were talking about, school, sure. and then I was talking about her. You know, it's kind of yeah. kind of a complete re- reversal. Reversal. I mean, the, the thing that's fascinating about both of these things is, you know, the bit that I really love about what I do most of the time, and what I really enjoy about what I do, is really the psychology of people's perception, which is what you're both talking yeah. about. And you know, when somebody comes to me to have them make a suit, you know. I tell everybody a chimpanzee can take your measurements. That's not where the magic in. Although lies. when that does happen, <laughs> I've Sometimes had suits can... be measured by chimpanzees, <laughs> and let me tell you, they don't fit like your suits. You got three arms, yeah, um, yeah. No, but it, but it's all about the magic of of matching the person and their personality to the wrapper that you put around that, and the perception of other people of it, because that's what makes them feel their best, because they can feel comfortable in their own skin, which makes them confident, and. People do judge a book by its cover, so the Rolls-Royce story of turning up in the Rolls, it paints a particular picture and people make assumptions. Just the same as your daughter would be concerned that you turn up in what is one of my favorite cars, by the way, um, 
in the in the S two, and everybody will think certain things. And especially when you're younger, I guess you you haven't figured out how to filter that information. Yeah. So you take things much more at face value than you know old hands like us who are a little more cynical and don't necessarily read quite so much into every situation. Although it is very typical and classic of sort of English aristocracy to sort of drive up to school in a beat-up Volvo, for example, sure. and get out looking disheveled. But, and but at the same yet time, the nouveau riche will show up in a brand new BMW. At the same time, BMW. Suits, at the same time I remember uh, um, maybe 15, when Tom Ford took over Gucci, mm-hmm. yeah, I went into Osna Bar in Dover Street. Walked in and I was. And my father was great friends with a guy called Doug man, Hayward. Man walked into a bar and man saw Dougie Hayward. Very, my father, my father was great friends with him. He's great friends with him. My father, I remember being taken to him to have my first suit made when wow. I was eighteen. And nice. I walked into anyway. I walked into this bar on Dover Street and I was wearing a Hayward suit. And he was the only person I've ever uh, who's ever made me a suit. When when you put it on, you really just do feel completely different. Actually, you feel you you, you just feel great. <laughs> You haven't had a DQ. And I remember. Well, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, you know, like the, the, the life is... He's life. asking for one, basically, what's happening. No, no, Carry no. on, Tom. No, can I... <laughs> I'm listening. What's not an angle? Um, There's an angle to this. No, there is an angle. There is an angle. <laughs> Always an angle. There isn't an angle at all. Um, um, and Tom... Anyway, someone, I was with someone who knew Tom Ford, and, and, and they introduced me to him, for, 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 for very briefly, and, he just, and Tom Ford turned around and said, that suit, that is amazing. Who made that suit? And I said, "Well, Hayward, because he's because and sure." It, and um, it was. I like to then think he could be at that point. He was trying to think about what he was going to do with Gucci going mm-hmm. forward because yep. he'd just over, taken it over and he reintroduced the bespoke tailoring yep. concept into Gucci. Yep. And I like to think that it was a Hayward suit that did it. it or, ra- or rather, it was you. <laughs> That's where that story is going. I knew there was an angle. I love it. I'm, I'm not. Gucci, I my Gucci was inspired my, by my, Tom my, Astor. My, my, well, I know Brilliant. that I wasn't, but my, we're not here to talk about We're here to talk about No, but I mean, look, on, on, anyway, on that note. But do you, do you on that agree note. that you can absolutely, I mean, there's something about. Sure. I mean, look, I tell all the guys they come with a get laid guarantee. I mean, it's mm. when you wear something I keep showing my wife that guarantee special. by the way it's working I'm hoping I know it's fantastic <laughs> yeah. you, I couldn't believe where you put it actually in, in, in the suit it was quite rather remarkable <laughs> but you know I mean I think it really does I mean they've actually done studies of this I mean you can research it you can pull it up online they've actually done legitimate studies t- that show that people who wear suits that fit well and put them on for things actually are more successful and their brains function in a different way it changes the way you think right which sounds kind of wacky but it's it's true with confidence in a kind of yeah i mean who knows what it is but if it affects your psyche and it affects the way that you think about everything and how you present everything that you do and so in some ways it is like the old school suit of armor that you would put in going into battle because you know if you're walking in with a stick you know and a a loincloth it's a little different to a full set of chain with a long sword yeah. and a helmet, right? You, you get a little more confident, a little more swagger as you wander in. So it's interesting too, though. I've obviously worked on television for many, many years on America's Next Top Model, and I wore a jacket and a, a tie sometimes, but I often wore a nice shirt, dress shirt, and a jacket. And I, people would say to me, oh, but you're a photographer. Why do you wear that? And I'm like, well, actually, I've always worn something similar. Not that I would shoot or work in it, but and I described my look, if you like, as a sort of fashion mullet, this was business on top and party on the bottom, because I would wear jeans. Yeah, I would have an aspect of fun around it. Yeah, sure. And and you know, it was sort of both business. I'd walk in and pe- instantly, like you said, garner respect because I was wearing a jacket. 
And it's very interesting how you literally instantly garner respect by the way you look. And then, of course, you can take it off, roll your sleeves up, and you're wearing jeans. You could be on your knees taking a photograph, and it's totally functional. So there was this, you know, for me, it worked. Because if you're going to go into a room and command an audience of people who are paying you a lot of money to do something, you kind of need to look like you're worth the money. And if you don't, they kind of get a little nervous. Well, I mean, that, on some level, that's sort of the full descriptive of what happened in the U.S. when Lehman Brothers went to shit. And then uh, at some point, not long thereafter, everybody, because it seems they were involved in Internet stuff, seemed to be wandering around in you know, a pair of shorts and a flip-flop and a, and, a, and a polo shirt. And everything's kind of come full circle since then to the point where, partly because of what Tom was saying, that all of the major commercial brands decided that for some reason they were missing a marketplace that had sort of st started to generate itself outside of what they were doing. Um, I mean, and this flows into what I do. I mean, when I started what I started, it was partly because there was nowhere in New York that I knew of where you could go and have someone make you a suit. You could go to Bergdorf Goodman and you could get a $9,000 Keton suit that was incredibly well made. But you'd put it on and it looked like your great-grandfather should be wearing it. And the guy would sell it to you three sizes too big. And I think all these things kind of met at a confluence. And there were little guys like me who started doing things that were kind of a little bit quirky and unique. But really were just reflective of a very old tradition. And then the bigger guys saw that that was happening. And so suddenly every single commercial brand started to have their made-to-measure program and, you know, various iterations of whatever it is to get to the point where now in the States, I think there's probably the best marketplace for guys to get suits and to dress well. Are you still since, since one of the few? Are you still one of the, is it still niche uh, in New York? I mean, are there still, I mean, there's only I one. I didn't realize there was, I didn't really didn't realize that you're the, you, 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 you sort of bespoke. No, there's only one me. Yeah. But now there are many places where you can go and get measured for a suit. I mean, that's but when not, you start out, there weren't that you... No, you, no, no. You, Hand on heart. I mean, it, it's sort of like you could go to a couple of guys who were on the fourth floor of an office building who, I'm not saying they aren't spectacular, but they were kind of hidden away. Um, or you could go to the guy in your laundromat who was sitting in the window with a sewing machine. Right. And it, there was really nothing in between. Uh, on, from a retail standpoint, no one was doing it. It didn't, also, it didn't exist over here. I think that what's another sort of piece of this puzzle too is this is again, and I, I'm all about the, the narrative and, and the story behind all these things. Like, you know, we talk about authenticity, but the, the, when you think about how a suit is made, where it comes from, you know, where the material is made, where the buttons come from, are they horn buttons from a particular you know uh, buffalo in Africa or whatever it might be, yep. and that the, the fabric itself is it dried in tomato fields uh in italy and with certain only you know sun hitting it from one time of the day and all these stories are actually true as in these sure. are i mean look you know you making suits when you're making them the way that uh, you know I, I literally i love the old joke that that is either true or not about savile row which was that you know bespoke suits are for cripples and crazies you either need it because physiologically your body just needs it because you have issues that just don't work in something that's um, symmetrical, or you just want fantastical things. And call, I, me, call me crazy. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I deal with mostly fantastical things, and so you know. But then again, I mean, look at the tradition of you know. Look at those, um, you know, Duke um, of Windsor. I mean, look at those guys. They all got the you know the best suits. 
Huntsman, I just spent, I just did a car rally actually three months ago with Lagrange, you know. Yeah, sure. Who's your, who's just taken over Huntsman, talking to him. Yeah. And his, his, uh, uh, he's just taken over Huntsman, which is the, the old, you know, my okay. cousin Chen, with the, mm. you know. Um, Huntsman's amazing. Huntsman's amazing. What's a suit there? Eight grand, I mean, eight thousand pounds, probably what, twelve thousand sure. dollars you're talking about. Sure. So his thing is, you haven't got enough decent people who know what they're doing to be able to make the kind of, so at the moment, the demand, right? So what he's doing, yep. I don't know whether it's a good idea or not, is he's doing This is a, a tip coming up here. No, no, know. it's not a tip. No, this is just a conversation I had with him because I had to spend a week with him <laughs> in Rome, Italy. And what else do you talk about? I mean, suits. Sounds terrible. What, what it was that or um, <laughs> with other people. With other people. <laughs> By the way, there were a lot of other people, uh, no, and his boyfriend, no need, who, no and his boyfriend, who was who was charming man, who won a, a, weirdly um, got Obama party, into right? the got into the Obama. He was he was one of Obama's thing. Uh, he was in the White House, wasn't he? Okay. I mean, there's an interesting matchup between hunt, like England, you know, Frenchman owning Huntsman's his boyfriend was in the White House, but there we go. Um, but what he's doing Degrees is... He's, of separation. But he's doing a range of... he's Because he can't fill the the, 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 the money, he's going to put the prices up of his bespoke suits. Mm -hmm. And doing a... What you were talking about, um, a sort of an off-the-peg thing that you can then have tweaked. Sure. I mean, look, there's forever the problem with this, ultimately. Are you, you're, are you pure? Are you a sort of purist? Uh, no, we, that, we, we make a small evolving? amount of ready-to-wear stuff, but frankly, the construction is the same. Um, most people who do ready-to-wear stuff, the construction is completely different based upon a house silhouette. Um, the part, the problem with with this is really just the. It's like many things. So one of my, I, I like to give books to people, and one of my favorite books that I always give to people is a book called Shop Class as Soulcraft, and it, it's it's written by this guy who grew up um, in the suburbs. His father was an electrician. He helped his dad every summer, and so he learned how to do electrical work. And when he went to college, he paid his way through college doing electrical work. Got kind of bored with it, found a guy who fixed old vintage British motorcycles. So went to work for him for a bit, then came back and, you know, got a master's and a PhD and got paid boatloads of money to go work for a think tank um, in Washington. And he was the guy that the lobbyists would be like, this is what we want to justify. And then he would go write the report. Hated it so much that after a few years he left. He rented a warehouse on the south side of Chicago, here, yeah, which, is, which is which is pretty gnarly. I don't know if you've ever been the south side of Chicago, but yeah, it's kind of rough. And he started fixing motorcycles for people, and it's it's kind of almost like a political treatise because he goes through all this stuff about how people in this country don't take pride in what they do anymore. The entire there have been like two generations that were lost of people who had any skills to do anything with their hands. And how he could never charge people what he really should for what he was doing because the guy turns up to fix his clutch and he ends up fixing seven other things on the bike because he can't let the thing leave without fixing it properly because he takes pride in what he does. And he's the only person he can do who knows Correct. about that. Yeah. yeah, and it's like old BSAs and triumphs. Yeah, yeah. But, and it's called Shop Class as Soulcraft because in 1982, I think it was, Congress changed the law. And until then, if you grew up and went to high school in the US, you actually had to do a class called Shop Class, which was how to make things. And you would make stuff and then you would go on from there to figure out whether you wanted to go get a job actually making things. And that hasn't existed here since then. And there's just this vacuum of people with skills. And But a huge fascination of people watching people make things, right? Correct. Well, now, but there's a massive resurgence and people are trying to learn how to do things again. But it's taken like 15 years. And, and, and the thing is that... I mean, all those chop shop 
Correct. TV shows. Yeah, all the Chop Chop TV shows, all the guys who kind of do stuff similar to me. Everything has become about artisanal products and doing things properly. But a lot of it, like the actual kind of the history and the tradition has been lost, which is why with many things, like I make all my shirts in Italy in a little place where they've been making shirts for hundreds of years. The guys who make my fabric, I mean, we're making bespoke fabric in Scotland right now with a lady who literally makes it in her back garden on looms that are not 150 Harris, years old. Not Harris. I mean, these yeah. guys make stuff for Anderson and Shepard and me. That's it. You know, I mentioned earlier the Dorme family. I mean, they've been making oh, fabric since 1842, right? Do you do you try and... Just ask a question. Do you, do you try and find these, these, again, these extremely specialists and... Um, Almost, I mean, you know, they're all these things that are kind of on the border of dying out, really. The, 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 these family, like in Huddersfield, and Tonic, you know, the, these yeah, I mean, people. Do you, do you, do you make? Is it one of your things I, to actually to so try and prop that up? Here's the thing: uh, trying to encourage that. Yes, but with self-interest. Anyone who's in the retail That's business, very honest of you. Thank no, you. I mean it's true. Anyone who's in, anyone who's in the retail business right now in this country, you're either an advert, an advertisement for Amazon, or you're doing something that's very special. The, what the middle grounds really because have. you know if I can walk into your store and I can look at this thing and it's like an electronic god knows what and then I, I like it and I look on Amazon it's 10 bucks cheaper I buy it there yeah. and you're out of business and so I think that applies to everything and so everything that I do is unique to us you can't buy it anywhere else mm. even if I do things with artisanal guys that I find like we make all our luggage in a workshop in Genoa with a little family. There are four people work there. The workshop's, you know, twice the size of the room we're sitting in. Um, at the moment, I'm working. I mean, Corgi in Wales have just started making socks for me. They've been making socks for 120 years. They're based in Swansea. Um, they make the best socks in the world. It took me forever to what get makes, to do it. What makes the like, best sock in the world, first of all? But would you like to, would you like to see that kind of expand? It? Like, are you, are you, of course. You, no, no. Look, I mean, look. But you, well, you, the skill. The, sure. Keep well, the skill if he set. Did, if he, he did, then he wouldn't have it just to himself. No, no. But I think there's a big, there's, yeah. a, there's a bigger problem. Than, there's a bigger problem than that, which is like a socio-political one, right? Which is, yeah, I'd love everyone to be walking around in $20,000 bespoke suits and wearing like, you know, $500 like cashmere and you know, leather gloves and driving around in like vintage Ferraris. It, what if the price reflected the amount of time and effort someone well, has put into but creating that? That's my to... point. We we live in a society that's driven by, you know, a capitalistic vision of the world, right? So not everyone can afford the nice things. And, the, and for those people who can't, Amazon have just opened their first retail outlet, right? They've, they've now got a shop, yeah. the Amazon shop, apparently. I was really Amazon on my way over here. or but Uni Uniqlo, H&M, Zara, finished, yeah. whatever. I mean... You know, I mean, look, it's just... It's it just, sounds terrifying, by the way. It's just a truism, unfortunately. It and is so a truism. The guy, you said it earlier, there's only one thing, there's either, there's either that or... Yeah. I mean, and, and so, you know, doing. to your point of the artisanal guys, yeah, I mean, I've been seeking them out and trying to twist their arms for years. I mean, the oldest shoemaker in Northampton right now is making me shoes. Um, I have... You know, dense. it's just a traditional. You are yeah. basically a collector of of fine things. Yeah, I collect fine things and fine characters and quirky people. And, and cleverlies. And I mean, it doesn't matter. Also, you go to the Royal Arcade, you get cleverlies. You get whoever. Everybody has their shoes. I mean, in England, all shoes. So Barkers, churches. They're all made yeah. in Northampton. I mean, lob. They're all the fat lob. They're all made. Well, lob is lob is a lot. I, lo I love I love the lob story in the sense that you know, for years and years and years, LVMH commercial luxury in inverted commas, um, crawl was trying to buy Lob. And Lob basically were like, sod off, we're not interested. And eventually they gave in, but the deal they made was, 
if you see lob shoes anywhere in the world, they're the LVMH versions, which are made who knows where. Don't want to get myself into trouble. Um, and then if you want real lobs, you go to Mayfair and you go to the store in get Mayfair lob. and they'll yeah. make you a nice pair of £6,000 hand-lasted real lob shoes. Yeah. They somehow managed to figure out how to crack that nut of how do we do something that's unbelievably special and not sell out. Because mm. normally what happens is... Well, churches has been bought now. Yeah. Ch- church has gone and the, and the quality has disappeared. Right. Well, what normally happens is those guys in Mayfair who are li- sitting there making hand-lasted shoes get paid a gobload of money, they all leave, and then the production goes to Guangzhou. I'm not casting any aspersions as to how great the quality is or isn't in China, but it all moves to China, and the tradition is lost. So circling back in our conversation, it's kind of what happened in the US. I mean, there used to be great manufacturing here, and it just died because everything was exported offshore. Actually, I I have a furniture collection as well, and my number one selling pieces are the pieces that are made in the US. And there is actually people who really care about where things are made. It's interesting that we... Do you think Donald Trump has got something to do with that? With people... uh, I mean, do you know, it's a funny question, but as an Englishman, do you think Donald Trump's got something to do with the fact that people might now start paying attention to things that are manufactured in America as opposed to... I I think that's giving him too much. I think there there was already a big movement. I mean, I think people are in general, whether it's Donald Trump or wherever we are in the world, people like things to be locally made. I mean, if you're buying, for argument's sake, a bottle of champagne, you expect it to come from France and be made in champagne versus, you know, just being able to say this is a champagne from yeah, somewhere I mean, else look, in the that, world. That's a special case though. I mean, there are certain things that are just, you know, indigenous to a particular geographic place, right? And for that, you need whatever, whatever the special thing is. Huddersfield, like, Northampton, well, But for instance, there's a, there's a reason that all the fabric is, like, if you, apart from the Italians. Who makes it, the best suit, by the way? Me. <laughs> Italians. No, 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 hold on. Hold Italians. On. Yeah, yeah, and, and the English. But I mean, here's where I was going with the fabric. Huddersfield is a very special place for fabric because when the Industrial Revolution happened, that's where they started doing it. But there's a reason for that, which is that when you make fabric, you have to wash it a huge amount when you're finishing it. So it killed all the rivers. And yeah, perhaps, but it's also that the water that comes up out of the ground in Huddersfield is extremely low in minerality. And so before people had water filters and systems that would take the minerals out, you needed to be places where you didn't end up with residue on the cloth because it would just make shit Hard water. Correct. And so that's why Dorme, who are French, I mean, we had a war with them for 100 years. They still make their fabric in Huddersfield. Scabal, which is Belgian, they make their fabric in Huddersfield. I didn't know that. You know, most of the best fabric in the world is made in Huddersfield. But of course, these days we can filter the water. Well, correct, we can, but because of the tradition, they still do it there because of the know-how. But also, the the amount of water you need in order to do it, it's a huge amount of water you need, so you have to do it where there's an actual Imagine your wife with the longest hair known to man, like trying to wash out the you know shampoo and conditioner for like a few days. Mm. That's how much water we're talking about. That's the vision right there. In talking about my wife, I am dating a twin. I believe you're dating a twin. And Tom, you're dating a twin. Yeah. Are, we, are they all, are all of our twins identical? I, what, what does that say yeah. about us, gentlemen? <laughs> are they all female? Hang on, it, says we're twi- it says we're twinning. <laughs> <laughs> we are definitely twinning. Uh, that, that and we, we're very good at discerning between one and the other. Well, I should hope so. Otherwise, we'd be in all kinds of trouble, I would imagine. I think. I think exactly. If you look out, I look out of the window and hope that my wife isn't looking. I think. I think that that is strange stuff. We've worked out that there is no doubt that the car you drive, the suits you wear, the people you hang out with. 
it says a lot about a man. It says a lot about a person, and that you know, that ultimately, you you can obviously want deceive someone with with the car you drive, or or, or potentially seem larger than life in the suit that you wear. Um, but I think that it's you know if 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 it's a great suit, you know you wear the suit. The suit doesn't wear you. Can I in- interrupt? From the- you just did. Yeah, and I'm going to <laughs> because for some, he's the only person I've ever understood uh, what I meant by you know that story. And I wasn't the, the, the Ford story was I was wearing. I was talking about Doug Hayward. I'm talking about mm-hmm. me. I'm just close. I'm just the person wearing it. But there is that thing about putting something on that fits that you never and so you feel you just feel completely extraordinary you just feel like a different you know that we were discussing earlier. i agree i've never had it before so before we finish this chat as well i'm i'm gonna come and if if there's if, if there's availability which there may or may not be because you but i will come to your place and i will have a suit made full retail price by the way no favors this isn't some stitch i can up. say single-handedly that every time i put one of his suits on i yeah. feel not i forget not million dollars but i definitely you know feel unbelievable <clears throat> and people comment on how great you look and there is no doubt that you stand taller you feel better and it's like having a great pair of shoes too i tell people look yeah they may be expensive but I have shoes that I've had for 20 years that I've had resold sort of 25 times or 10 times. And it's worth it because they feel like slippers, even though they're great leather shoes. Mm. And it's just worth it. And, you know, it's, and it's a hard thing for people to sort of swallow because people love this. But it's also cheap- very difficult, very difficult to find. This was made by someone in Soho back in London. It doesn't feel, you know, fine. Yep. It doesn't work. Well, I mean, it doesn't no, make no, me feel. I, w- I would love to do you that. have space. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, needless to say, we shall figure it out. That's a, is that a, I thought that was almost a no, wasn't it? I think, I, 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 I think on that note. I was note, like, fuck you. This is, I, was thinking, I was like, fuck you, go find your own tailor. I was like, Jesus, sorry, you found this one. And this has been Shaken and Stirred with Tom Astor and my great friend. Oh, there we go. The Smoke still, and s- still looking for a fucking tailor. Rock and roll meets fashion. Duncan Quinn. Why, thank you. <laughs>